Well, hello, everybody. Glad that you're here. And if you're watching on the stream, uh, we, we're so glad you're here, too. Uh, we know you're in your homes, but we feel your presence. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're with us this morning. I know you just uh, sat down, but I would invite you to stand one more time because we're going to go before the text this morning. So if you would, get those uh, masks back on and let's stand one more time for the reading of the word. We're reading today. We've been in the Luke uh, narrative, the Christmas story out of Luke. And so today we'll be in Luke chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7. Before we do that, let's, uh, let's pray that prayer of Shema, which is a Jewish daily prayer that helps refocus us. It invites us to really look and, and be able to kind of center ourselves as we hear the very words of God. Uh, there's a lot going on in the world, a lot happening in the season. And for this moment, in this next 30 minutes or so, we want to just hear from God this morning. So we say this prayer as a way to refocus us and get us ready. So say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. This is Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says this In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, for most of us, we've heard this Christmas story before. This is a very uh, uh, familiar uh, narrative. In fact, when I was a kid, every year at Christmas, on Christmas morning, my grandfather would read this story before we were allowed to open presents. We were not allowed to open presents until we heard the story. So we as kids, we heard the story at least once a year, but likely more often, probably for you uh, as well. So most of us know the story, but I actually, about five years ago, I actually got a little bit of a taste for it. Because I was uh, here in western New York, and I was, uh, I had some meetings that I had to go to in Boston, Massachusetts. And so as I was trying to figure out the travel of how to do this, I decided I was going to do it all in one day. I was going to drive out, I was going to do the meetings, and come back all in one day. And so about 5 a.m., I jumped in the car, I got on the 90, and I headed, uh, I headed east towards Boston. And I made it there at, it was a lunchtime, it was lunchtime meeting, so I, I got there in time. There was no traffic, which I was thankful for. Got there, we did our meetings, and as soon as the meetings were over, I jumped right back in the car and I headed home. So needless to say, it was a long day. It was not, uh, it was not an easy day for sure. It was a long day, but it got a lot harder uh, about 10 o'clock at night. Uh, I was still in Massachusetts. I was in Ludlow, Massachusetts. I stopped uh, for some gas and a, a couple of refreshments, and I got back in my car, turned the key, and the car wouldn't start. The car wouldn't start. And I didn't think it was a battery because it was making weird, whooshy noises. I don't know a lot about cars, but it was making these weird noises. And so I, the only thing I could think to do is I had AAA, so I called AAA. And I waited the usual forever. And eventually, finally, uh, about midnight, they got there. And they determined, you're right, it's not a battery. There's something wrong with your car. We're going to have to tow it 
to the local mechanic somewhere in Ludlow, Massachusetts. So I got a ride out there. They drove it to, like I said, the local uh, mechanic. They dropped it off. Obviously, the mechanic was not open at midnight. And so they dropped it off. They said, all right, take care. And I was like, whoa, wait, wait, whoa, hold on. I have no idea where I am. It's midnight. I need a place to stay. Is there a place to stay around here? He said, oh yeah, there's a Holiday Inn about a couple miles down the road. I said, great, will you take me? He goes, no, I won't take you. Company policy. I, I'm not allowed, to, I'm not allowed to, to, to do people. Good luck. And off he drew. So there I am, a little after midnight, at some random mechanics, closed mechanics, in the middle of who knows where, and off I sat in a dirt, you know, not, it wasn't a dirt road. I'm not going to make it that extreme. It, it was a paved road, but it was dark. Uh, and I, there I, hoping I was going to hit the inn someday, the Holiday Inn, but the inn of some, someday. I eventually did. It was a little after 1 a.m. And finally the beacon of light showed up. At this point, obviously, I'm exhausted, right? I'm exhausted. I've been walking literally for miles. Finally, at about, you know, one, a little after 1 a.m., get to this uh, Holiday Inn. I walk into the lobby. I head right to the, the, the front desk, right? And there's one of those hourly employees who had the night shift. Uh, so he wouldn't seem all that uh, interested or thrilled that I was there. And I walked it to him. And right, I'm this weary traveler. I've been going all day. I've been walking. And I, I, I get to the desk and I say, Oh, friend. Oh, innkeeper. Oh, innkeeper. Do you have room? Do you have room in your inn for me? And there was a pause, and he looked at me, kind of puzzled, and he goes, yeah, this is a Holiday Inn. We have plenty of room. This is like Ludlow, Massachusetts. We've got 80 rooms available. Sure, you can have, you can have a room, right? I don't know what I was thinking. I think I conjured up this idea in my mind as I walked deliriously uh, in the dark towards this thing that there's going to be no room in the inn. Uh, but I walk in, and sure enough, in Ludlow, Massachusetts, they had plenty of beds, plenty of room for me. And so I got to stay, they welcomed me in. I got to stay overnight. And then, you know, in the morning I walked back to the mechanic. They fixed whatever was wrong and off, off I went. But for that night, I, 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 I felt like I got a little taste of, of what it must have been like that night. The question is, this morning, is, is that actually what it was like? You know, when you think about it, right, we, we, we picture, this is sort of the thing that we picture in our minds when we think about this story, right? Mary and Joseph coming to Bethlehem, weary travelers, showing up at the local inn, asking for a place to stay from the innkeeper, and being told that unlike the Holiday Inn, that this inn, the Bethlehem Inn, had no room for them, right? And this is kind of the way that we think about this, right? We've actually created scenes and devotionals and mysterious characters like the innkeeper all around this idea. But is this the way it went down? Is, is this accurate to what would have happened in a first century village in that time? Well, come with me. I want to invite you to come. Let's explore a little bit about this concept and what it was really like that night. 
First, let's look a little bit about Bethlehem. What, what was Bethlehem like? Well, Bethlehem sat on the edge of the Judean wilderness. So you can see here, uh, you can see Bethlehem right there in the middle. It was about six miles south of Jerusalem. But the thing about Bethlehem is that it was placed in a very, almost strategic place. And the reason is, is because it was right on the verge of the Judean wilderness. If you see that marked area there, that was the Judea wilderness. Think of Jesus uh, when he's starting his ministry. We looked at this, uh, we looked at this in the fall. He runs into the wilderness. This is the wilderness that he runs into. And Bethlehem sat right on the very edge of that. Now, in the wilderness, this is where the shepherds lived. This is where you would tend sheep, which sounds a little weird, but it's true. You, you tended sheep in the wilderness. This is why in the fields close by, there were shepherds, right? They were tending their flocks. They were in this area. And so Bethlehem was more of this, like, uh, uh, agricultural area. It had farming to the west, and it had shepherds to the east, and so it was this little village that sat right on the Judean wilderness, fairly remote, fairly r- rural, that housed shepherds and farmers. It was sort of like a agric- little agricultural area, right? It was not that big. It was a remote rural village, and there was, it's estimated that there was about 300 people living in this remote village at the time. Edge of the wilderness, about 300 people, six to ten kids, they estimate, living in that small little Bedouin village. We sing about this every year, right? We sing, oh little town of Bethlehem. We, we have no, I, we have no uh, uh, allusions to the fact that this was a giant metropolis. We, we picture this, right? It's this little tiny, again, think about 300 people in this little Bedouin community, this little uh, sort of farming and shepherding village. Micah actually talks about this, the prophet Micah. He's talking to, uh, and he's prophesying of of when the Messiah will come. And and he says this about Bethlehem. He says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. He he admits right there, it's a small little clan. It's not that big. It's kind of this remote, rural village. Out of you, this small little clan— out of that, though, will come the Savior, O little town of Bethlehem. O little town of Bethlehem. To give you some perspective here, uh, in Akron, New York, which again is a small little town just outside, you know, a little past Clarence, Akron currently has roughly about 3,000 people living in it, right? Which we would consider fairly small, 3,000. But that's 10 times bigger than what Bethlehem would have had. And there are no inns in Akron. There are no inns because you don't need it. It doesn't, uh, there's, it doesn't justify. You have to go to Darien Lake in order to find an inn uh, or head all the way here to transit in order to find like one of these hotels, these inns here. And so if Akron with 3,000 people, again, in a different culture where we value kind of more hotel stays and less in inviting people over to our homes, in a different culture with all of our technological advances, even in Akron, 10 times bigger than Bethlehem, there is no need for an inn. There's no need for a hotel. And so again, if I could just kind of sum it all up, the likelihood that there would have been an inn in a remote Bedouin village of 300 in the first century is actually extremely small. The likelihood is actually not that. There, there was, it's, you can almost assured 
that there wasn't what you're thinking when you think in, when you think that, what, what existed in Bethlehem. So then why does the Bible say it? Why does the Bible use the word in? There was no place for them in the inn. Well, let's look at the word itself now. The, the word itself is the word kataluma, right? And kataluma really, when you're trying to get the essence of what this word means, and this is what most uh, Greek dictionaries will put, they're trying to get at the sense of more of like a guest house. So that's why, in fact, some of your translations might even say that. It might re, uh, the NIV, actually, the, the newer updated version, actually switched the word. It's no longer, if you're, if you're looking at the newest version of the NIV, it no longer says in. They've switched it to guest house, because that's really what they're trying to get at. That's sort of the essence of this word, a guest house or a guest room, so to speak. This word, cataluma, is used only two more times in all of the New Testament, both in the Gospels, and both telling the same story. It's the story of when Jesus is preparing for his Last Supper. And if you remember that story, he sends his disciples, a few of his disciples, he says, hey, go follow this guy, and when you, when you meet him, ask him if he, we can have his cataluma, if we can have his guest house, his upper room, right? Jesus isn't actually looking for a hotel space. He's looking for someone's guest room. He's looking for their guest space. Actually, let's, just, let's even just take a look at it so you can really see what's going on here. The first one is in Matthew. And in Matthew 14, 14, again, uh, Jesus calls them in. He says, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my cataluma? Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Again, I said it happens twice. The other time is Luke himself. Luke himself uses this word. Again, the word is only used three times in all of Scripture, and twice is by Luke. The first time in the Christmas narrative that we looked at today, and here again telling the same story in Luke 22, tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is my, and in this part of the story, they translate it as guest room. Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Again, like I said, it, Jesus wasn't looking for a room in a hotel. He was looking for someone's upper room, their, their guest room space, their guest room. Now let's take a little bit now about uh, what a typical house looked like in the first century. And I've got a little uh, uh, a graphic here that'll help show this. But this is what a typical house— now they, they are, there were certainly some variations, for, but for sure. But by and large, there were some certain elements that you saw in every house. Kind of like today, if you go into any one of our houses, there's going to be a kitchen, right? There's going to be bedrooms. There's going to likely be a living room of some Similar here, different, different variations, but the, the same basic principles moved on. Every house had like a kitchen and living area on the first floor. This is where they prepared meals. This is where they hung out. This is where they spent time together. And every house had a designated place for your animals. And typically the animals either lived in the courts, uh, courtyard, sort of outside there, but within the walls. Or a lot of times, uh, many, many people lived on sides of hills, and so what they would do is they'd, they'd find uh, little caves or little clefts in their house in, in, in the hillside, and there they could find a place to keep the animals. Again, space is valuable in that time. So if they could find another place for the animals so they didn't have to live in the living area, all the better. So a lot of times their animals would be found kind of in, in a cave or in a little cleft on the hill next to their house. 
And then finally, every house had sort of an upper room, an upper chamber where they slept. This is where you usually slept. You did some other daily tasks you could do up there as well, but this was really where uh, you stayed uh, overnight. But in almost every home, you reserved a space in your upper room, and you called it your guest room. Now, again, when we think guest room, we think like a a, a space with a door that you can close, and it's your own private thing. There's no privacy in the first century. You all live together. But there was a space that was reserved for if somebody came, if someone needed accommodations, if there was a, a, a traveler that needed a place to stay, you had room in order to provide that for them. Hospitality was actually very, very important in that culture. They didn't, like I said, they didn't have a lot of inns. They didn't have a lot of hotels back in those days, and most people couldn't afford it anyway. So if you traveled, you went from town to town, village to village, and when it got dark, you were at the mercy of somebody opening up their home to you so that you could spend the night. You were at the mercy of someone saying, you can stay in that corner that we've reserved as the guest space. Sometimes they even invited you to, uh, you can see on here, uh, up to the roof. Uh, In those days, it wasn't like Buffalo, so it didn't get cold, and you could sleep right up there on the roof, and that was a perfectly good space for travelers could come and to stay with you. Some sort of upper space reserved for the guests. This was actually very important in the first century, the idea of hospitality and letting people in. Now, just to kind of further my case for this, There actually is a word in the Greek that means more of what we think of when we think of uh, inn, right? When we think of inn, we think of more of, like I said, like a hotel, right? We call it the Holiday Inn, the Red Roof Inn, the Comfort, the Ramada, the Days, the Hampton, right? You get the point. When we hear the word inn, we think hotel. But like I said, Cataluma doesn't carry that essence. But another word does, There actually is a much more specific word in the Greek that is used in order to really specify what we think when we think inn or a hotel. And and, and this word actually is used by Luke. Luke actually uses this word later on in it. It's the word pandocian. And this really means more specifically an inn, a, a hotel, a place where you paid money and then you received accommodations, that, that sort of transactional piece to it. And like I said, Luke himself uses this word later on when he tells the account of the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you remember in that story, the Good Samaritan, it, he bandages up this man's wounds, he carries him on his donkey. And let's take a look at it, uh, specifically what Luke says here. He says, Then he, that's the Good Samaritan, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an in. That's the word pandocian, and that's the word that specifically means what we think of. You give money, you get accommodations, more of that hotel-like nature. It's a different word, and Luke uses it specifically later in in his story. He says he brought him to an inn and took care of him, and the next day he took out two denarii. He paid the guy because that's the type of situation, that's the type of, of, of accommodations that are happening, and he gave it to the pandocianer the innkeeper. Interesting. So Luke does, in his story, specify an innkeeper. It's just eight chapters later than we think. It's it's actually eight chapters further on. And if really Luke wanted to to specify or or get in our, our heads the idea that Mary and Joseph walked up 
to the Holiday Inn, to the hotel, he would have used Pandocian instead because he uses it later to mean the same thing. He uses the guest room later to talk about an upper room as well. I'm making a case for this, that Luke does not specifically mention an innkeeper. Luke does not really even, in his, tra- in his version, even describe an inn. There is no innkeeper who refused a woman in labor because she walked up to the desk just after he flipped the no vacancy sign. It's like, oh man, if you had just gotten here like 15 minutes later, I just gave away my last room, right? This is the concept we have. And like I said, we've built entire scenes and characters and devotionals around this idea. But much more likely, what happened was Mary and Joseph walked into town and knocked on door after door, after door. And there was no room in anyone's guest house for them. They knocked and knocked and knocked or stuck their head in. I don't know if they had doors, so just go with me on that. But there was no room in the inn. And the shocking implication of this is that no one had room for Jesus. No one let him in. The the king of the universe, and he had no place to go. The God who came to save us was turned away in the first hours of his arrival. You see, I think we create the character of the innkeeper because it depersonalizes it a bit, doesn't it? It, it, It's someone else. It's that person over there who's who's sort of just made a business decision or or literally just, you know, gave his last room over it. It sort of depersonalizes and allows us to swallow it a little bit easier. But that's not what the text is trying to say. What the text is trying to say is that no one let him in. Right? There's a fall, with, a, with the innkeeper, there's a fall guy. There's a scapegoat that allows us to simply observe from a distance. It's easier to create the impersonal innkeeper. It's harder to stomach family after family having to turn them away. And, and there are reasons that they, ha- they did this, right? It's not like Bethlehem was just filled with a bunch of jerks, right? Like, there are reasons that they got turned away. One was is that hospitality was actually very risky in the first century. You were inviting strangers into your home and you didn't know anything about them. A lot of times when you traveled, you had letters of recommendation from somebody else. So when you knocked on the door, you'd say, no, no, here, read, read this. I'm, I'm, I'm cool. It's okay. Right? Paul actually uses this later on when he says, you, you people, you're our letters of recommendation to the world. Right? But that's how you traveled a lot of times. But it was risky. Right? Hey, can I come in and sleep next to your children tonight? Is that cool with you? It was, a, it was a risky thing to show someone hospitality. So there's a reason why you might say no. Or we have to remember that Mary and Joseph are not the only ones coming. Everyone was traveling to their ancestral land because of the census. And so there likely was simply a space issue. There literally was just no room. You see, friends, I don't have a huge problem using an innkeeper in the story. Like, that's not, that doesn't, that doesn't bug me when, when the innkeeper appears in our stories. I actually think it's a good representation, right? It's a good representation of what happened. But we must not forget that the innkeeper in the story is you, and it's me. 
and it's you watching at home. The innkeeper is not someone over there at a distance that we can look at and say, oh, he was really in a tough space. The point of the story, friends, is that you're the innkeeper and you have no room for the Savior of the world in the first hours of his life. Who don't let Jesus in. And friends, there are reasons why we don't let Jesus in too. Very similar reasons, right? Letting Jesus in is risky. Maybe for you, you've never let Jesus in before. Maybe, maybe this whole Christianity thing is new to you. Maybe you were dragged here because it's Christmas time and a relative twisted your arm. Maybe, maybe you're watching on the stream right now and you just sort of stumbled upon this thing and you're watching it for the first time or you promised your grandma you'd watch today. And, and maybe this whole thing is totally new to you. And you've never really let Jesus in. You're just kind of confused about what's going on. And you're not about to do it because, man, that's risky. Because when, when you let Jesus in, it actually changes everything for you. It reorients your whole life. It stretches you, and it will stretch you in ways you'll never, uh, you'll never understand until it happens. And, man, that is super risky. But, but friends, it's good. It's good. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus frees you from sin and death and into life and life to the absolute full. It's risky, but it's worth it. And so if you've never experienced Jesus before, if, if you're just exploring this for the first time, would you dare make a little room for Jesus in these next few weeks? And if you're interested, uh, you, we've, you've got our email. If you're watching on the stream and, and you're just kind of confused and, and you don't know what's going on, but, but there's something in you right now that's saying, you know what, I want to explore this a little more. It, it, I, I'm still maybe not sure, but I, I want to explore this, this Jesus thing a little more. Just, just indicate that on the comments or, again, our email is right there on our website at www.randallchurch.org. We would love to begin having a conversation about what that looks like to understand and embrace this full life in Jesus. The gospel that says we were dead in our sin and then we were rescued for the, from, the, uh, from our sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's risky, but it's good. But the other reason, too, for, 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 for some of us else is that we just simply don't have room for Jesus. Right? We just, we just don't have the room. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. Oh, absolutely. But I just, I, I, don't have any, I don't have any room. One of Jesus' closest companions was a, was a man by the name of Peter. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter began writing these letters. And in the first letter that he wrote, he begins to describe what life was like before Jesus. Get a load of this. He, he says this, in, in first, again, in 1 Peter, right in that very first uh, chapter. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. He calls it empty. He says, but before Jesus, before, before this whole new way that we just experienced through this guy named Jesus that I followed for three years, before that, we lived this life that was empty. It was handed down to us by ancestors, and it was completely void and empty. Man, that seems like pretty accurate to me. It's an empty way of life because sin has left us empty. We seek to fill that void then with all sorts of other stuff. 
right? Our, our sin and depravity has left us empty, and so we go searching in our lives for all sorts of things to fill that up. There, there's an empty way to live, and then we fill it with all sorts of things. One of the ways we fill it is with anxiety, Anxiety, And I think this is something that's really uh, pertinent right now in, in our world in 2020. Right? There's a lot to be worried about. And when we face these things in our life, when we face these, uh, these hardships, when we face these dilemmas, right, that's when we really feel that void. That's when we really come to understand, oh yeah, like, there's got to be more to life than this. And one of the ways we fill that emptiness that Peter's talking about is with anxiety. We, we, and it's rooted in fear. I don't know what to do. I'm kind of upside down right now. And all I can think to do is worry. Do you know someone who's anxious right now? Is this something that you, you do or a rhythm that you fall into? This like, sort of like anxiousness? It would be totally justifiable, particularly now. But we fill it with anxiety. Another thing we do is we fill it with anger. We fill it with anger. Maybe the response to COVID and everything that's going on right now is not worry and, and fear, but actually anger. Because you read a certain segment of articles and you watch certain news stations and you read certain things on the internet and you have figured it out. And you don't know why everyone's making such a big deal of it. And so it makes you mad because this whole uh, year, this whole year has taken so much from you. And so you just get mad. And, and you're faced with this emptiness of this, of this world. You're faced with the emptiness of your own sin, and you fill that up with anger and self-righteousness because you've got it figured out, and everybody else is foolish. Sometimes we fill it up with anxiety. Sometimes we fill it up with anger. Sometimes we fill it up with activity. And this is more of a distraction mentality. Like, I, I feel the emptiness. I, I know that my life is not uh, in rhythm with God, and I just don't want to deal with that right now. And so, where's the parties? Where's the decorations? Where's the presents? Where's all the stuff I can do to kind of, and even when it's not Christmas time, what are the soccer practices and the, and the games and the recitals and the school projects? And we'll just fill our lives with, with busyness because we don't actually want to deal with the emptiness inside. And then a year like this year comes, and all the parties are canceled, right? And, and now we're actually faced with it. And maybe we'll just try to channel that in other ways because I just, I don't want to listen and, and deal with the emptiness inside. So we filled up with activity. Or another way that I see people do it is with activism, right? And this is really rooted in control. This says, I I'm going to do something about this emptiness I feel. And so I'm going to go make a difference. I'm going to go do something good. Or I'm just going to kind of like chart it all out and figure out why do I feel this way and, and try to uh, organize or, or, or purge or go on a vacation or do something active so I can control this feeling I feel, this activism uh, thing that I'm going to fill up my life with so that I don't have to face the fact that there's a void inside. For me personally, I kind of uh, go between two. I kind of am in this rhythm of activism where I try to do enough good things and I try to like be, you know, set up systems where I read my Bible more and I'm going to pray more and I'm going to set up all these spiritual systems that's going to make me feel better, right? And then inevitably I fatigue. I can't maintain my systems and my legality and my law. And when I, um, when I fail, when I inevitably fail, then I just go right to anxiety, well, what am I going to do? It's, I get fearful and like, I'm not good enough and what's going to happen? I feel the sin weighing on me and what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to create a new system then, right? And it's just activity 
uh, and activism and anxiety, activism and anxiety. For some of you, you've got, you're just, you're mad. You're just angry right now. There's just, there's so much going on and you don't get it and you think that everyone's messing up. You think that people are just mistaken all this and you're just mad. Or, or you just don't want to deal with it. You're just going to fill it with activity and stuff and distraction and just put my head down and just get through this thing. W- what's it for you? Is it one of these? Maybe, maybe it's something different. I don't know. What have you attempted to fill your heart with in order to address the emptiness Peter's talking about in your life? Because whatever it is, those things won't satisfy. They don't deliver. They never fill the void. And and so as Peter continues, as he's describing this empty life, he continues, he says this uh, as he continues on, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold or anxiety, or anger, or activity, or activism, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with what? With the precious blood of Jesus. See, Jesus is the only one who can fill that emptiness inside you, the void that you feel. When, when life comes up and when things come and you feel that sense of like, this is, there's something more here. It's only through the precious blood of Jesus Christ that can fill you and satisfy and make you whole and offer you life and life to the full. So the question Advent asks us, friends, is do you have room? Do you have room? Or have you filled it so much with that anxiety or anger or activity or activism? Have you filled it so much that Jesus knocks on the end of your heart and you say, sorry, no room. You're my savior. I love you. I'll come to church. But deep down in the quiet moments of my life, there's no room in the end of my heart for you. The question is, do you have room for Jesus? Friends, you're the innkeeper in the story. And I'm the innkeeper in the story. And the question Advent gives us and asks us is, is there any room? Friends, is there any room? In Revelation, at the end of the story, Jesus comes to us and he says, he says this, He says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. It's a promise in scripture. He stands at the end of your heart and knocks. And the question this Advent, friends, is, is there going to be any room? Is there going to be any room? We actually sing about this kind of hidden in the lyrics of a song that we sing every Christmas, Joy to the World, gets at this very idea. And we sing it again and again, but hidden right in there is the question Jesus is asking you this Christmas season. Let's sing it together. Joy to the Lord, the Lord is come. Let us Sing it out. 
And heaven and nature sing.